You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, it's Wade Zaglis here, the Education Editor for Campus Review. Today I'm talking to Professor Zlatko Skirbis, the Principal Chief Investigator in an ARC-funded Social Futures and Life Pathways project entitled Our Lives, which began in 2006. Working alongside Professor Skirbis are four academics drawn from various universities, including Dr Bruce Tranter, Dr Cameron Parcell, Dr Jonathan Smith and Dr Jacqueline Lachlan Boy. PhD student Nathan McMillan is at Monash University and completed part of his honours degree working on the Our Lives project. In a nutshell, this longitudinal study aims to better understand the highs, lows and challenges of more than 2,000 Queenslanders as they make the transition from adolescence to adulthood in a time of rapid change, instability and disruption. Professor Skirbis, to your knowledge, is this the most comprehensive study of adolescents transitioning into adulthood we have conducted in Australia? It's now in its 14th year, I believe. Um, thank you so much, uh, Wade, for your for your interest in this in this research. Now, this research is uh, really uh, um, has uh, we've been working on this for for about fourteen years. Uh, yes, uh, that is true. Now, the whole purpose of this research is to investigate uh, the significant challenges and milestones in the lives of young Australians and their families. Uh, we recruited fundamentally from uh, uh, young population uh, across Queensland. And what we wanted to understand is how they actually navigate adulthood in a context of what is really a pervasive social, political and economic uncertainty. So yes, for 14 years we have uh, studies, studied this uh, single-age cohort of young people um, and uh, what we wanted to really understand is uh, their educational, occupational and geographic mobility, their early experiences and expectations of partnering and parenthood and and lots of other things like uh, family origin and the impact on post-schooling transitions, uh, impact of these transitions on their well-being and agency. Um, we looked at social, political and environmental attitudes and their engagement with new technologies. So we this has really provided us with a platform to do a, a, a whole range of very interesting uh, uh, interrogations into these very specific fields. Now, there are two major areas that we were focusing on. First of all, we wanted to track young adults' experiences of life events and processes, such as tertiary graduation, finding adequate employment, long-term partner, partnering, becoming a parent, and so on and so forth. But we also wanted, secondly, to identify factors that enable positive career relationship and housing outcomes, as well as those factors that actually in many ways heighten risks of labor market marginalization, tertiary non-completion, residential and relationship and instability, and so on. And fundamentally also, we wanted to understand how how we can inform policies that support uh, these young people's well-being and social participation. Now, let me just go back to the question that you posed. Is is this the only such study, really? Um, no, it is not. Um, there is another study that is, to some extent, similar, 
uh, in Australia. And uh, it's called Longitudinal Survey of Australian Youth. We call it ELSE program. Um, and that one monitors work and study transitions from ages 16 to 26. Now, what we do in our project is we complement ELSE in several ways. We first we measure key influences and aspirations from an earlier age because we start uh, started our conversation with our respondents when they were 12 or 13 years of age, mm-hmm. and now we cover it into their late 20s, so well beyond where Elsa is going. Now, this is really interesting and important for to understand career pathways and, and transi- transitions. Now, secondly, Elsa focuses on work and study, but yes, we do that as well. But we also look at how these areas link to other domains, relationships, family, well-being, and so on. And finally, um, Whereas ELSA is less theoretical, our work examines some major claims about social change and young adulthood. So there's a lot of really exciting and interesting theoretical research in Australia and beyond that we are trying to uh, enter into dialogue with. Um, and there is really some fantastic scholars that have done so much to shape this this domain of, of, of intellectual activity, such as Joanna Wynne, Dan Woodman, and and others. So, so um, yes, uh, we are we are quite unique, but we also acknowledge similarities where they exist and where that is appropriate. What motivated you and the co-authors to embark on such an ambitious, huge study? such as this, and, and do you intend to, to track this cohort later into their lives, or is that not possible? It's really interesting. I mean, the, the idea for this project really um, uh, came as a result of uh, watching a, a very famous uh, British uh, documentary, uh, 7-Up series, uh, by Michael Aptet. I've watched um, it. Uh, Yes, no, it's so exciting. And uh, I remember trying to entertain my children uh, one holiday years back. And um, so this is how the, the, the research, the idea for this research came up. And I then partnered with a really good colleague of mine from um, uh, University of Queensland, then Professor Mark Weston. And we came up with this idea. And then another, a number of other colleagues and collaborators joined, and you mentioned them already. Now, our team is is really working extensively to preserve, engage, and learn from this valuable cohort as as they transition from that period of interesting period of adolescence into young adulthood. So yes, we are hoping to uh, continue this work um, and uh, that we basically adjust adjust the lens with which we look at this cohort based on a specific life stage in which uh, our respondents are. So as they move through the life course, these young people are confronting very different challenges. So, you know, they've, uh, they voted for the first time in the federal election, and we made uh, that a bit of a focus. They, uh, you know, now we were just recently, we were looking at, their, their housing careers, because they're at the stage in their lives when they're kind of oscillating between dependency on 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 parental home and their efforts to kind of struck an, an independent uh, housing uh, 
uh, housing career. So uh, a lot of really interesting stuff. And um, uh, yes, we are hoping to continue with this work uh, for as long as we practically can. One of the interesting findings of the 2017 survey was that only one in 10 of the now 23 to 24-year-olds owned their own home. And another interesting finding was that only 8% were married. How stark do you think that contrast is between this cohort and what was expected, say, in the 1950s and 60s? Uh, well, the difference uh, are, are quite, uh, quite, uh, quite, quite interesting, actually. Now, um, census measures household home ownership as opposed to an individual's home ownership. But we do know that since the 1970s, uh, economic changes and, and challenges have meant that people with lower incomes and, and, and that typically includes young people who have found it increasingly difficult to purchase a home. Similarly, changes in social expectations have meant that people no longer feel compelled to marry at a younger age. So they are instead more inclined to postpone this milestone while they, let's say, undertake post-secondary study uh, and so on. So, mm-hmm. yes, these are, uh, there are certainly some stark differences in these patterns. Now, um, young adults today rely on parental support for longer than prior cohorts. There is absolutely no question about that. And so um, uh, parental transitions were far more standardized as predictable as, to, as, a, as opposed to the generation of younger adults that we are interested in. Well, what have been some of the other more surprising, even startling revelations of the surveys over the last few years? Well, we began the study examining these cohorts aspirations while they were still while they were still very young. So they were at that stage as I mentioned earlier, probably about 12, 13 years of age. At that time, um, uh, there was a literature, quite abundant literature uh, that that argued that many traditional influences on young people's career formation were waning, uh, leaving individuals with greater flexibility and freedom to pursue a wide range of potential pathways. Now there was a strong sense of possibility and optimism, which was reflected in our early data. What has been perhaps the most surprising has been the, let me call it a double-edged sword nature of these changes, which is actually, um, which in actuality have also meant a great deal of uncertainty and insecurity for the respondents in uh, in our study. So as they mature, that kind of sense of uncertainty increases. Now, this cohort graduated high schools uh, high school in in the years i would probably say that roughly follows the global financial crisis they were um, entering a youth employment landscape that was really significantly more precarious than when they first began thinking about their post school careers we have observed um, the striking implications of this uh, increased uncertainty uh, spill over uh, into all of the respondents' life domains. Um, and they were affecting their a whole host of areas of their life. Uh, their move out of home um, uh, to make long-term relationship commitments uh, and so on and so forth. So now let me say this. Uh, at age 22, 
just 6% of respondents were uncertain about what occupation they would have at the age of 30, and 16% rated their mental health as fair or poor. However, by age of 26, a few years later, 18% of respondents had now become uncertain about their job, um, what what their, their job would have, what job they would have by the age of 30, and 29% now reported having fair or poor mental health. So those those changes are really quite striking, and they are telling us a really important story about the times that we live in. I mean, based on that, judged on these kinds of findings, do do you and your co-researchers feel that society is failing young people on various levels? And, and if so, in which areas? Oh, look, let me, let me just go back to... Let me go, go back to the, the, the mental health uh, question just, just to illustrate the point. I mean, I, I think it's difficult to make generalizations, but let's probe into one of these areas. So if you look at uh, the way in which young people in our study uh, reported on their mental health, um uh in 2015 so that is uh that is a few years back when they were 22 years of age 84% said they felt positive about their mental health so age 22 84% reported positive feelings about their mental health 4 years later uh, 71% have uh, reported feeling positive about men- their mental health. So, so this that the drop really is, is is really quite significant, and it says something about the broader constellation of of, of relationship with the, within the society and what it means and how that impacts on on the individual. Now, similarly, in relation to physical health, um, at the age of twenty two nearly ninety percent reported feeling positive about their physical health, but four years later. Um, that uh, has decreased uh, to 79%. So that is really 10% decrease, roughly. And uh, again, it says something both about the times we live in, but also about the age uh, and the corresponding um, sense of security and 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 well-being that that our our our, our respondents are. Um, are, are experiencing. So, look, this is this is really interesting, and I think this, the research like this is really helping us remind us of some of these these developments that profoundly impact the people that live in our community. And specifically in this research, it's telling us something about the people who are really transiting into adulthood. And and how they feel about themselves. So I think it's it's really quite fascinating. Obviously, a study such as this has profound implications for for policy. Um, I'd imagine you'd face a range of challenges. What are some of the big challenges you face in a, in a research to this big project? That this uh, look, big? I think <laughs> uh, Wade, it's a, it's a really good point. Uh, I, I think there are probably two. Key challenges. Uh, both are unavoidable when you're doing such long, large-scale longitudinal research. The first one is really about uh, around financial support. Now, this kind of research can only be done with uh, generous support of 
of the funders, and we have been absolutely uh, blessed with uh, with a wonderful support and and, and commitment uh, of the Australian Research Council. Now, um, so that is that is certainly something that uh, that is always on our mind: our capacity to attract that external funding. Now, we also, in uh, all researchers doing longitudinal research, also face another challenge, and that is a challenge of attrition. You know, as uh, we've been interrogating these, these young people for a decade and a half, and so it is inevitable that they uh, they move places, they uh, uh, they move jobs, uh, they sometimes keep in touch, sometimes they don't, and and a lot of our effort, energy, and funding really is dedicated to ensure that we keep in touch with as many of these uh, as many of them as possible. So, look, while difficult to avoid our our, our attrition uh, uh, has been uh, uh, kept at, at acceptable levels to to maintain adequate statistical power and representativeness. So there is, we, are, we are quite satisfied with that. But it is an ongoing battle uh, and ongoing effort is being put into ensuring that that we can continue this really important research that, that is telling us, as I said before, so much about the times that we live in. Professor Zlatko Skirbis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for speaking for uh, with Campus Review.